0: This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. In this installment of our series on liberalism, Ben Klutze, the Director of Academic Outreach here at Mercatus, speaks to Pete Betke, University Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University, and Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for the Advanced Study in Philosophy politics, and economics here at Mercatus. In addition to his research, Dr. Betke has also authored and co-authored numerous books, including, most recently, The Struggle for a Better World. In today's episode, Klitze and Betke discuss his new book and address such questions as what is cosmopolitan liberalism and what does a good society look like? The audio, as well as the transcript for this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity.
1: For our conversation today, we're joined by Professor Pete Betke. He's the University Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University. He's also the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercury Center at George Mason University. His writings and academic work are too numerous to list here, but today we're discussing his latest book, The Struggle for a Better World. Now, Professor Betke is a beloved professor and colleague who has been an important part of the history of the Mercator Center and continues to be an inspirational leader to many of us. Our discussions over the past several months have focused on liberalism and pluralism. And Professor Betke, your book, I believe, contributes very substantially to this series of conversations. So thank you for joining us here today.
2: Ben, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. So thank you. Great.
1: Now we'll delve right in. When you speak of liberalism, there's a type of characterization or qualifier that you apply, which is liberal cosmopolitanism. It's not a term that you often hear, but you know that this is a deeply rooted idea in in liberal thought. And underneath this idea is the recognition that we are one another's dignified equals. Can you unpack this concept for us?
2: Well, I mean, The issue of international or cosmopolitan liberalism is just simply the focus on two aspects. You mentioned one, which is that we are one another's dignified equals. um, And the other one is that we're strangers nowhere in this world. So citizenship is understood as part of liberal internationalism, as opposed to any parochial aspects. So the liberal is a citizen of the world not a citizen of, let's say, just the United States or the citizen of France or whatever. And, you know, we may be born in those circumstances. We may speak a certain language and have, you know, an affiliation with all of that. But our aspirations are for a world of the free flow of resources, of people, of ideas and all of that. And it's that vision of liberal cosmopolitanism that stresses toleration of all the different sort of cultures, different religions and whatnot, that is at the founding, I would argue, of kind of the quest for liberalism in the past. It began, of course, in the religious wars, right? And desiring toleration of different attitudes towards the relationship between individuals themselves and their God, and being able to have toleration of that. But it broadens across a whole bunch of things. So as I've been going around talking about the book, you know, one of the things I try to stress, which I don't do enough of in the actual book itself, but is to stress the ongoing battles for liberalism today, and to see the battles and quests that are going on for expansions of liberty in our world today that we see. And so I don't want to go too much more into this, but it, you know, it's connected up into you know, Kant's notions of perpetual peace and all kinds of other very important ideas that come out of the Enlightenment project. And I think that that Enlightenment project, as understood in that way, still has a lot of legs today. In fact, is essential legs for today, uh, despite all of the naysaying about it, in some sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it seems that there's another related concept that you highlight as well, which is the good society. So then if we practice liberal cosmopolitanism, does that take us there to the good society? And what does that look like?
2: Yeah, so I guess that there's two aspects of the good society. I should point out that, you know, as I think about the way I wrote certain things in these chapters, so these chapters are made up over a 20-year period of time in which I was invited to give keynote addresses basically at learned societies. I was president of societies or was asked to give a speech here or there or whatever. And I had these opportunities about what was going on with the liberal project basically since 9-11, right? So you think about, you know, 9-11 and the rise of a more militarized, you know, world, a closing down world, a more parochial world. And I'm trying to defend this idea of liberal cosmopolitanism. In the midst of all of that, you get hit with the global financial crisis. In the midst of that, you get hit with the pandemic, growing concerns about inequality, growing concerns about militarization and, and all these things. And, I, you know, in the context of trying to take little bites of an apple in each mm-hmm. one of these things, you know, so I'm hoping that people will find the arguments in here, or the collection to be cohesive and the argument to be compelling But it is disjointed in the sense that they're different bites at different times and in different contexts. And I think that's kind of important to keep in mind. But I'm loose at times with some of the discussions of the things that you're talking about. I wish I was a little tighter about in terms of the arguments for that. But at some level, I can't be any tighter because my own intellectual position is a kind of little goofy one, which is that I'm an economist, so I'm a big believer in consequentialism. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I believe in universal rights of mankind, right? Mm -hmm. So I have like this position, which is trying to juxtaposition utilitarianism Mm -hmm. or consequentialism, however you want to call it, with some kind of notion of universal rights. And when do they bend to the other one? So then I have this picture of a good society. A good society is the one where that balance is done right, okay? And we respect one another's fundamental rights. We exhibit neither discrimination nor domination. But yet at the same time, we arrange the affairs such that we generate all of the wonderment of modern economic growth and development. And so I'm trying to make an argument that fits into that package and... I don't want to say good society is like, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, in pornography, you know, we'll see it, when we, you know, we know it when we see it or kind of thing. But, you know, that's a play on Walter Littman's essay on the good society. That essay had a big influence on people like Hayek and whatnot. And so I hope that that doesn't sound too loosey goosey because oh, no, there is, is a, there is a vision there. About right. how it is a society could operate where we are able to treat one another as dignified equals, to realize gains from trade, to engage in specialization, to engage in freedom of association, freedom of contract. I apologize for going on, but you know, a lot of libertarians, which I come out of, so you know, like I, I'm talking all this liberal language, and I am a liberal, but you know, ultimately I'm of the libertarian. A radical libertarian variant of classical liberalism is where I'm coming out of. Libertarians tend to, they don't all do this, but there's an intellectual error that they make that they emphasize the components of human behavior that are most obnoxious, but yet fit within the strict letter of the (laughs) libertarian code. Okay. And I think that's a mistake because rather than the idea of us saying, you know, that we have the right to say no, which is fundamentally important aspect. But to me, the good society is just as important about our right to say yes, Mm -hmm. right, our right to say yes to interactions that we otherwise never would have had, you know, Mm -hmm. our ideas are the smorgasbord of intellectual affairs that we would never even think about if we just stayed in our own parochial way. Mm -hmm. And so it's this kind of idea of moving beyond where our circumstances were that we were born, that I think a free society promotes and develops. Mm -hmm. That is one of the great beauties of Mm -hmm. a free society, of a good society. And that's something more than just the strict letter of the libertarian code that, you know, your freedom ends at the end of another man's nose kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Right. You also, I think you provided a critique of classical liberalism, which is that it failed to inspire because among the list of concepts embedded in, in liberalism you know which includes liberty prosperity and, and peace one important concept was left out which is justice and the injustice of you know capital distribution inspired a socialist vision and perhaps this continues to fuel the, the rise of keen interest in socialism and other justice driven ideas now, when you speak of justice in the classical liberal sense, you're referring to commutative justice. All right. Can you explain that a little bit?
2: You know, this is the difference between distributive justice and procedural idea. This is basic idea that, you know, justice is in the relationships that we have between one another and in our meeting of our obligations contractually with one another. You know, playing on the whole theme in the book is the idea coming from Hume that, you know, the foundational institutions of society are property, contract, and consent. And so we have to have stability of possession, the transference of those possessions by consent, and the keeping of promises. And so this aspect of what justice is, the keeping of promises or holding people to their contractual obligations and the security of persons and property, that's kind of the notion that I'm trying to get at there. To go back to an earlier idea that's related to these conversations that you're talking about is, despite the fact that I want to have international cosmopolitan liberalism and international liberalism, it's not that I believe that you know we're going to wake up one day and we're all going to be different human beings that all of a sudden get along with everyone else. We have, a, in many ways, a natural suspicion of the others You know, that may in fact be hardwired. There's a variety of explanations maybe for that. And so the imagery that I have in the book when I discuss these kind of ideas is the difference between sharp objects. So society is possessing of these sharp objects. So think about basically spears sticking up in the ground. And we are quarrelsome and we're prone to conflict. And thus our social interactions inevitably entail conflict as well as cooperation. And I'm asking what sort of ideas What kind of patterns of behavior might transform those situations of conflict into recognizing the opportunities for cooperation? Or the way that Hayek would put it in discussing catalaxy is, how do you turn a stranger into a friend? And this is the importance of trade and whatnot. And so another way to think about it is, how do we end up by dulling the edges of our social conflicts with each other so that we end up by being only bruised and bumped and not mortally wounded? In the world that we live in today we have in many ways sharpened the objects right our social discourse has in fact been like people taking you know sandpaper and sharpening the edges so that our interactions become more and more you know mortally wounding rather than dulling and i want to somehow like dull those edges even though recognizing those things And I think that's what the liberal project in many ways was, is to find in ourselves our common humanity, to work with that common humanity, to be able to recognize and respect our differences, but to realize that those differences create opportunities for mutually beneficial exchange, right? So, you know, one of the great ironies or puzzles that need to be overcome is that the greater the social distance between people, the greater the gains from trade. In interaction, but the greater the costs of being able to interact because of greater social distance. So something has to come in to be able to allow us to both recognize as great gains from potential exchange while at the same time allow us to in fact transact. And so this is what I think liberalism did. First, as an idea, right? As an idea, you know, this is the great thing, is in my explanation, ideas have priority over other things. But then those ideas then come from people. They don't come from the brow of a genius. They come from their experience with one another and interacting and expanding their realm of interactions. But then they become codified into practices or what I call in the book, institutions. And then those institutions enable us to expand and increase our social interactions with others, realize greater gains, and so forth and so on.
1: Great, great. That's really interesting.
2: So so what you're saying about justice Mm -hmm. is critical in that because what justice is in this sense is the idea of the relationship between you and I and others and then the obligations that we have to one another, not about whether or not I have and you don't have Mm -hmm. and whether or not I'm going to take from you to give to me or me to take from me to give to you because either one of us have or don't have. So it's not about haves and haves nots. It's about the way we interact with one another and the way we engage in mutuality and solidarity with one another.
1: Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with Danielle Allen on this podcast, and I was really insightful. One of the challenges that she also offers to liberalism is sort of the the lack of emphasis of a concept of equality. And, you know, she highlights this in the uh, Declaration of Independence, where there is equality and liberty, but equality comes first. And she says that over time, folks who are very excited about liberalism mostly talk about the freedom part. I'm reminded of a quote by, I believe, Milton Friedman that says that uh, those who seek uh, equality above freedom will get less of both. But if you seek freedom above equality, you get more of both. I'm butchering this. I'm paraphrasing this. But I think it's something to that effect.
2: So I saw Danielle Allen recently in a conversation with Emily Chanley Wright. Right. You know, she's brilliant. I want to learn from her as much as I possibly can. I think, you know, she has real insights to a lot of these issues. You know, a lot of this comes and also turns on ambiguities in language. You know, I use the term in the book a lot, you know, freedom. I use the word liberty. The problem with freedom is freedom is a little bit more elastic than liberty because, you know, freedom from or freedom to, you know, which one are we talking about, you know, and these kind of things. And I think equality is a similar kind of idea. If we treat one another as dignified equals, that doesn't necessarily mean that it means resource egalitarianism, that they have the same, you know, ideas. It means that you're treated equally before the law, that equal things must be equally treated before the law and in the interactions of that. And I think that those kind of conversations are complicated and difficult. That we should be having as adults conversations. This whole point about the discourse and everything, you know, we need to recognize that any time that we try to fix endowments, this is the economistic way to put it. We can fix endowments, but we can't fix endowments in a way that is incentive invariant to the behavior of the individuals involved. And the problem is that forces us to realize. That in public policy, we are never choosing between particular distributions. We're always choosing between rules of the game, which are themselves going to engender patterns of exchange, production, and thus distribution. This is what Friedman was getting at. If I try to tip the scales in the favor of giving resources from one to another. I necessarily discriminate against the one that I am. Right. And I'm discriminating in favor of the other one. So can we find some way in which the rules exhibit neither discrimination nor domination? That's what the liberal project is trying to do. And Danielle Allen is fascinating because, you know, she began her career studying basically Greece, ancient societies and everything like that. And a lot of these ideas about the nature of republicanism and everything follow out of those earlier, you know, ideas. So the roots of a lot of the liberal ideas can be found in these various earlier intellectual histories that we have to unearth and excavate. And I think that's the right word, right? It's like the archaeology of it all a dig it and find it and put it in different places and then apply it to the context of our times.
1: Right. There's an interesting paragraph in your book. This is from page 229. You say that, and I quote, serious thinking by true liberal radicals must emphasize the positive aspects of human sociability, of cooperation with those of great social distance, which you you just talked about, and of the civilizing aspects of commerce. This is the Deuce Commerce uh, thesis from Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Smith. And you're saying that it needs modern advocates And, you know, those who will address the questions of globalization, immigration, refugees, and the possibility for mutually beneficial exchange. As I was reading this, I kept thinking that, you know, beyond intellectuals, thought leaders, academics, and those one might call the elites of our society. And this is also about having that conversation with the general population, right? The plumbers, farmers, the store clerk and so on. And these people have lost trust with the elites. Will these modern advocates who emphasize the, the positive aspects of liberalism be successful in this current era?
2: I mean, this is a big question. It's one of the things that, you know, if you listen, my book in many ways is a criticism against populism, you know, left-wing and right-wing populism. It's sort of my enemy that I'm taking on in the various essays. But at some level, you know, we need a kind of liberal populism, right, that is shared and excites the imagination of the everyday person in society. I'm reading a wonderful book right now by Emma Griffin called Liberty at Dawn. It's a social history of the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution. And its primary evidence is life histories that people wrote at the time of what it was like for them to, you know, go through these things. And, you know, their life was miserable in many ways, but their life was getting better as revealed in their life histories, the way they communicate it. You know, I would love us to be able to communicate in some sense what the promise that liberalism can offer, right? I mean, this is where I sometimes get in a little bit of trouble with the disjointedness that I was mentioning earlier, because, you know, what I'm trying to do is demonstrate you know, both the intellectual history and the historical practice that produced what Angus Deaton calls the great escape, or what Deirdre McCloskey refers to as the great enrichment. And I want to see, you know, the connection between that great escape from that Malthusian world, and this great enrichment that has improved the lives uh, and a lot of the least advantaged in society, multifaceted improvement in our livelihoods. And be able to communicate that to people that are, in fact, in the process of going through various difficult transitions, right? If I'm a water carrier in the 19th century and indoor plumbing is invented, you know, I'm losing out at some level, right? But at another level, my life is opening up. And this is one of the things that Emma Griffin talks about in these life histories is how, you know, people leaving the farm and what it was like to leave the farm and then what it was like for them to work in apprenticeships. And then when the apprenticeships start to decline, what's it like for them to now have more freedom in their job options? And of course, as they're going through their life, their life is filled with all kinds of difficulties and tough turns and tragedies and everything like that. But they're getting increasing scope of autonomy in their lives throughout the century because economic progress is giving them more and more options, right, for them to do things. And I think this is what we need to talk to people about, about what globalization can yield for them, what open borders would yield for them, what kind of society we want to live in that doesn't turn away people that are escaping oppressive regimes, but instead welcomes them you know, into your society and absorbs them into your, rather than keeping them hidden off in a corner or something, and instead absorb them into the society. Right. And the great benefits that we have from that you know, that you see, you know, it's trivial things like, for example, your choice of restaurants and the kind of foods that you can experience, the kind of, you know, music that you can listen to, the kind of art that you can experience, right? All of these things are from this various smorgasbord of cultures that are moving in and out and freely and adapting adjusting. And to me, this is, I mean, again, you know, the everyday person, has good reasons to distrust elites. But I think that's because elites have tried ever since the rise of the progressive era to govern over rather than to govern with. So if you think about what a self-governing democratic society is like, so the kind of thing Tocqueville was talking about in Democracy in America, that is a kind of democracy in which we are governing with one another right? Now, it was incomplete. It had all kinds of troublesome aspects to it. I'm not trying to deny any of that. But the general mindset was one of trying to govern with, as opposed to being governed over. Whereas what's happened with the progressives was the idea that we could have trained elites who could be put in charge, immune from democratic pressures, and could, in fact, solve our social ills for us. The giant problems of Poverty, ignorance, squalor, disease, you know, all of these things could be overcome if only the experts were in charge. And so the way I like to think about this, and I say it a few times in the book, is that the one vision that I'm trying to suggest is that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if only given the freedom to act. Right. Whereas the alternative perspective is extraordinary people can do extraordinary things for you if only given power. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the extraordinary people doing extraordinary things is a warrior's mentality. It's part of the virtues of the warrior, the military chief or chiefdom could, you know, run the thing and be able to pull off these great victories against great adversaries or whatever. And I want to see the vibrancy of our society come not from great leaders but from people ordinary people who do great things because necessity is the mother of invention right. and they discovered you know new and fascinating ways this is where it lines up to a lot of the research that's going on in mercatus having to do with permissionless innovation that's our source of our salvation is in the everyday people discovering new and better ways to do things that the experts miss You know, the experts miss because they're only looking at it over here. And I think you see that, for example, if you look at the number of immigrants that become major entrepreneurs, right, or the number of immigrants that change the way we think about doing science, they see the world differently. And because they precisely see the world differently, they're able to do all these other things with it. So that's kind of who I want to champion in that. So, yeah.
1: Great. Now, going back to something you mentioned earlier. So, this book is about 20 years in the making based on a number of speeches and comments that you've made post 9 11. What have been your observations about trends in thinking, how people are receiving these ideas, you know, as a modern advocate for liberalism? I know that you shared earlier in the book that you are pessimistically optimistic, but what are your general thoughts on how people are? Taking these ideas?
2: So, I begin the quote, the book. I begin the book with a passage from Hayek highlighting this notion of what's called the tacit presuppositions of political economy. These are the taken for granted, the unquestioned attitudes that people have. The best way I can communicate this is to try to relay a story. So, in 2004, I think it was. Chris Coyne and I went to Princeton to a conference that was honoring P.T. Bauer, the great development economist. And the people speaking were Israel Kirzner, Doug North, James Buchanan, and Amartya Sen. Now, Sen was there because Sen works in the field of development economics, but it's also the case that Bauer was one of his tutors when he was an undergraduate, you know. And so he got up there and he was asked the question, Sen was asked the question, What is the biggest difference between, you know, 1964 and 2004 with respect to Bauer? And Sen was amazing because what he said was, well, in 1964, everyone would have discounted everything Bauer said because they believed that politics was a positive sum game and markets were a negative sum game. But in 2004, we're here at Princeton celebrating Bauer precisely because now the world thinks that markets are positive sum games and politics is a zero sum game. Okay. But I think Sen was off a decade and that's part of the whole reason for the book. So what happened was after 1989, The tacit presuppositions did shift. Now, those presuppositions, I think, were fought hard. The stuff that Sen's talking about was incremental battles that were fought by people like Milton Friedman and Hayek and Buchanan and Nutter and you know just name all the sort of market-oriented people from 1950 to 1980. And so, by 1980, you start to see the elite opinion has switched over. So, the 1980s, you're starting to see this even more, and then. At the end of the 1980s, communism collapses. Eastern Europe has to go through reforms. Former Soviet Union eventually, you know, in the early 1990s ceased to exist, and it has to go through reforms. It's also vital to remember that the Scandinavian countries all went through fiscal reforms in the early 1990s because they had to also become more liberalized. So you can look at a country even today, like, say, for example, the Netherlands, And the Netherlands is going to score, or Norway is going to score higher on economic freedom in 2019 than the United States. And so all that was going on. And so the tacit presupposition shifted as Sen talked about. But by the time we get to the early 2000s, the tacit presuppositions already flipped back. And the reason I think is because liberals made a huge mistake. After 1989, they became complacent and lack creativity, because they thought they had won the battle of ideas, and all they thought it was was a battle of implementation. And instead, they needed to think more creatively about how to enact liberal reforms in the post-communist era, in the development areas. I should have mentioned the third aspect of the 1990s was the failure of development planning. Right. And so, you know, Bill Easterly coming along and pointing out the elusive quest for growth. We had had 50 years of foreign aid programs, all of which had crashed and burned. And so now the question is, what are we doing? But we didn't think creatively enough about what liberalism means for the 21st century. And so as a result, our energies were devoted to politics. And to me, I think we ceded culture to other people, other perspectives. And to me, we always have to remember is that politics is downstream from culture and that what really matters is the intellectual cultural discourse that's going on in society, both at a deep level and at a surface cultural level. What I mean by surface culture is things like popular music. So look at the lyrics in the popular music and what people think about what's going on in popular music, right? There's a reason why Rage Against the Machine did very well in terms of ideas, or even ideas were, in fact, rested control again. And then think about, I have a chapter in the book which goes through and tries to talk about the attitudes of college kids. And you know you think about it, a kid that's in college today, they were born after communism had already collapsed. All they know is that the United States has been in perpetual war. All they know is that there was a global financial crisis. All they know is that there's increasing concerns with people straddled with debt, increasing concerns with people dealing with disproportionate criminal justice issues, that there's a slowing down of the mobility between the quintiles because of various gumming up of labor markets and whatnot. And then you, you get a global pandemic on top of that. That's this kid's lived experience. What's their tacit presupposition? Their tacit presupposition going back to Sen isn't that, hey, markets are a positive sum game. Politics is a zero sum game. Now it's politics and leaders. And and I think this is one of the issues that's going on is that now this is me being normative. right? People attribute too much meaning to politics. Their identities are wrapped up in politics. Right. Rather than wrapped up in their communities or wrapped up in their friendships and wrapped up in their aspirations for a better life. It's all tied to like politics and with me or against me kind of thinking. And so as a result, we don't have the kind of civility that we need in our political discourse to be able to actually have an adult conversation about very serious problems that plague our world. Which are layovers from militarization, that are layovers from crony capitalism, that are layovers from, you know, rent seeking and special interests that have, in fact, gummed up the ability of individuals to move between the quintiles, right? We have structural inequality in America, but why? Why do we have structural inequality? To me, I think the key issue there is structural. The structural inequality is precisely because we have various policies and institutions and whatnot. Which in fact don't allow the free contestation of ideas, you know, this kind of stuff. So I'll sum up this last thing, which is we definitely need to have a public reevaluation of the due commerce thesis, the role that civilizing aspect of commerce, free commerce, sweet commerce allows us to have a conversation about that with individuals. And the person that's doing that the most at the moment is Deirdre McCloskey. All right. So she's the one who's making the most progress on thinking about those issues. But you can also look at works like Chandran Kukathas's most recent book on immigration and freedom or Ben Powell's new book on immigration as well. Brian Kaplan, my colleague on open borders in cartoon, you know, version or whatever. I mean, think about that. Like there's innovations in the way we're communicating ideas now across the people. And we got to move the conversation from talking with elites to reaching down into deeper aspects of our society.
1: Right. right.
2: (laughs) How to do that? I don't know, because, you know, I'm a college professor. That's it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's great. Now, when you were discussing why you're pessimistically optimistic, you said that the worthiness of economic policy measures can be determined on the basis of only one criterion. Do the economic policies proposed result in wealth and prosperity or not? I was reading this. You know, my, my suspicion is that that criterion for economic policy is losing some traction with our society because criteria such as equality, equity, justice, you know some of the things we've talked about already are gaining attention as the basis for policymaking now is it the case that you know when we have prosperity we experience the other benefits justice equality as well as liberty because you also mentioned this in one of the chapters that the wealth and poverty of nations turn on the adoption of institutions but so do the questions of equality liberty and justice so they're not mutually exclusive but yeah. really a matter of emphasis right
2: yeah. So, again, you know, this relates back earlier to my discussion about the balancing between rights speak and consequentialist speak right. kind of thing. But look, the bottom line is we don't eat growth rates. Right. So what really matters <laughs> is what these growth rates purchase for us. Right. OK. Mm-hmm. And what it purchased for us is something more than just our caloric intake or, you know, whether or not we have a, you know, car or whatever like that, what matters is the effective things that we can have at our disposal because of modern economic growth. You know, women have greater access to educational opportunities, right? And so, you know, it's very difficult to make sure in a rigorous way that you're always not confusing, one, correlations and causations, and two, causes with consequences, okay? What is the ultimate cause of this great cornucopia of human progress? It's ideas, right? That's ultimately the idea. You have to have the ideas that, you know, respect individual freedom, to respect trade with others, all these kind of things like that. To recognize one another's dignified equals, And to see that we're strangers nowhere in this world. That's an idea. That's an idea first. And then it has to be somehow transformed into something that it becomes a common practice. And the more the idea spreads, the easier it is for the idea to become a common practice. And that common practice then gets oftentimes codified. Not always, but a a large number of it gets codified into these kind of institutional patterns that we have. And those are the things. So, you know, the idea has to become instantiated in the institution, the institution then gives us the performance. But that performance is valuable, not because we have more stuff, but because of what that more stuff allows us to do with respect to our ideas about the expansion of our liberty of our well being and all of these other kind of things. Now I'm going to talk correlations. If you look at things like the Human Development Index, they're positively correlated with levels of economic growth and development, right? I recommend everyone to just go look at some of the data in the Economic Freedom Index, where they try to look at these other kinds of indices to see about human well-being and what they're correlated with. In my book, Calculation and Coordination, which I published 20 years ago, I have an appendix in it, which actually goes through... You know, now that data is old now, but it goes through and does all those ideas. And when I teach my course in development economics, you know, at the end of the semester, I ask the question is development good for the poor? Is globalization good for the poor? And then I try to look at all these different indices having to do with life expectancy and Educational attainment, democratic freedoms, you know, all these kind of issues like that. And it's not a one-to-one. I'm not trying to say that, but it is a pattern that fits that these things are correlated with one another. And I think we need to stress that to people so that they understand it because I think a lot of people think that economic growth is at odds with the achievement of these things. It's not. You want to help the least advantage in society you have to have modern economic growth. That's how the least advanced society get lifted up. You want to have the least advanced society suffer in misery, right? Then what you do is you do growth deterring strategies. So there's a reason why Tyler Cowen, in his book, Stubborn Attachments, makes the argument that growth is a moral imperative, right? And that economic growth is a moral imperative. We're going to do better off. So why am I optimistic, despite the pessimism, because I think there's a lot of headwinds pushing against progress. And we have to engage that conversation in a serious way, treating those criticisms with the utmost of care, not with dismissal, but the utmost of empathy and understanding of where they come from. Conversations begin where the other people are, not where you would like them to be. So you have to you know, listen to people and, and learn from them and go from there. But the basic idea is as long as the tailwinds of progress, the entrepreneurial spirit, the idea of greater gains from trade and greater gains from innovation, as long as they're pushing forward, they're pushing faster than the headwinds against it, we'll be better off tomorrow than we would be today. But we might not be as better off tomorrow as we could be if we just got rid of those headwinds. So, you know, I'm very, very optimistic about the future because I believe the ultimate resource is the human imagination and that individuals are going to keep pushing for realizing greater social benefits from exchange with one another and social distance, overcoming those things, but also technological innovations. We're at the beginning of various technological revolutions and so that's going to push those tailwinds are going to push us forward despite our best efforts to hurt us you know and so what i would really get nervous about is if we started having a lot of policies which curtailed globalization mm-hmm. and moved us more and more towards isolationism mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why the pandemic was so problematic because The concern was the supply chain is now disrupted. So maybe we should get away from international trade. It's One of the reasons why Trump was a horror to me, besides a variety of other things, was because he spoke almost all the time about protectionism and all these things like that. Like, you know, his economic advisors, I I thought were advisors, not economists, uh, kind of ideas on that front. (laughs) We want to have more open trade, more immigration, you know, all these things like that, rather than raising those costs. But the other thing is a challenge is to innovation, right, to make everything be a precautionary principle rather than, you know, so if we made everything in innovation a precautionary principle, you know, we'd still be running around in like horse and buggy rather than having a car, let alone an airplane, let alone, you know, anything else. And so we need to move to this position of permissionless innovation and basically embrace the free flow of labor and capital throughout the world. And when you get those two things going, then all of a sudden those tailwinds keep up real big speed. And then you can have these bursts of tremendous improvements in mankind.
1: One thing I've been musing about, I'd appreciate you weighing in on this, especially since you've done a lot of work about the Soviet Union going, you know, decades back. The prosperity of a country like China and the existence of a country that is not liberal, I think, seems attractive to others who might practice a different kind of a system and say, hey, we can have prosperity without the liberalism, even though uh, they did some market liberalization to get to where they are now. I think that perspective is somewhat challenging to the advancing of liberal cosmopolitanism, if you will.
2: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I was probably a little too, in the essays in here, to the extent that I talk about development issues, which would have been in the earlier essays, let's say the the essay that I gave in New Zealand in the early 2000s, in the first decade of 2000s, I might, you know, mention China and whatnot. I was more influenced at that time by work on like how the farmers freed China, or changed China, or the notion of fiscal decentralization, that existed in China. They did change the system. I think it's really important in history to understand the difference between the original reforms, post Mao reforms in 1978 to 1985, and then 1985 afterwards. So those are the Deng Xiaoping reforms in 1978 to 85 versus 85 and and after. Because what they did in 1985, that's where the don't matter what color the cat as long as it catches the mouse kind of idea came about. Deng Xiaoping's reforms were one of fiscal decentralization, and that changes the nature of the relationship as opposed to in Russia, which had more fiscal centralization, you know, in Yeltsin and then in Putin. And so I used to contrast the de facto and the de jure. De facto reforms in China are far greater than the de jure reforms. The de jure reforms in Russia were greater than the de facto reforms. And so Russia, more things changed, the more they stayed the same. Whereas in China, the more it looks like they're staying the same, radically changing. However, that has all changed <laughs> in the last you know several years. And in fact, now what you have is an aggressive centralized, you know, authority that in fact is engaged in very odious behavior towards segments of its own citizens, the persecution of the Muslim minorities in certain parts of China and crack down on artistic freedom, on intellectual freedom and all these things like that. And so the question is whether or not China can continue to be centralized and yet at the same time experience the kind of economic growth it has in the period from 1990 to today. You know, it's still, you know, something we have to watch very closely. I think I need to be a lot more critical of that earlier period as well, because it sowed the seeds for this period. And so since I wrote the book, I've been asked this question a couple of times and I'm thinking more about it. You know, I teach a class that discusses these things all the time and so, the answer from how the farmers changed China or how China became a market economy, those kind of books were're in a different era now than we were a decade ago when we were thinking about those kind of issues. And so I think people that are comparative political economists are going to have to you know rewrite their examinations of what's going on in China. I think mm-hmm. Singapore might be a bigger challenge mm-hmm. to liberals. And so these micro states and whether or not in micro states, they're able to have an absence of private property, let's say, and yet be able to manage. Those are bigger challenges, I think, to people like myself. In many ways, what China is doing is reverting back to an earlier form. And therefore, the expectation should be that it will revert back to its earlier economic performance as well. I don't think the jury is done yet that you know, the increasing centralization, increasing oppression is going to end up by still generating tremendous levels of economic growth and development. The other question is, again, now this gets really hairy. There's a discussion of the difference between what development is and what industrialization is. And China might have actually had industrialization, but not development. And what I mean by that is that if you're making a sausage and you stuff more and more meat into the sausage, you can get a bigger sausage, but you don't necessarily get a more tasty sausage, right? What we judge our sausages on is whether or not they taste good and whether or not we enjoy eating them. So if I keep on shoving stuff in that. And so this is kind of like the sort of white elephant's kind of view of what's strewn throughout China or whatever. And we're going to learn a lot over the next five years, 10 years about China, Maybe I'm wrong. I have to hold out that possibility that, <laughs> right. uh, that I'm wrong about it. But it seems to me that if China becomes more and more centralized, that its economic dynamism is going to become less and less. Right. Singapore, on the other hand, seems to be very economically dynamic. But it might be the case that Singapore is just like a microstate. So right. it's managed differently than what a large landmass country would be. So,
1: right. As we uh, bring this conversation to a close, I wanted you to reflect on this quote by Hayek, which is in your book. And it says If old truths are to retain their hold on men's minds, they must be restated in the language and concepts of successive generations. So, you know, basically, how how would you restate the case for liberal cosmopolitanism (laughs) for for this generation? Sort of also, you know, speaking to our, our listeners and readers what are the some of the key takeaways from this is there a call to action that you like them to take this
2: yeah thank you for that i probably use that quote too many times in the book it's repeated <laughs> a couple of different times hayek of course plays a major central role in the book intellectually i described in the introduction you know my discourse community is i'm constantly interacting with the ideas of hayek and mises and buchanan those are kind of my main people that I'm trying to wrestle with to think about what the conversation is today. But just to start, I think that one of the things I want to emphasize to listeners is that ideas matter, morality matters, kindness, compassion, humility matter. We need to present liberalism in a way, the ideas of liberalism and the moral attitudes that make up a liberal society with kindness, compassion, and humility. And we need to make sure that we stress those aspects of it. This summer, I read a wonderful book by Sam Fleischacker called Being You, Being Me. It's about the issues of empathy and the difference between empathy as being, can I project myself into the position of the other? Or do I feel sympathy because I'm standing next to somebody? The differences between Hume and Smith. What Smith was able to do was project himself into the shoes of another person far distance from them, actually, but be able to live through that in their shoes to be able to see what that's like. I think liberalism is in that light. It's about that kindness, that compassion, that humility, that empathy that one would have with the other in these circumstances and trying to figure out how we find those patterns of human interaction, which minimize human suffering and maximize the possibilities of human flourishing. And so in in that light, I don't think there's necessarily a call to action as opposed to, and again, I'm an academic, right? So it's really a call to study and critically think about our world. The term struggle in the book is chosen to have a double meaning. It has a meaning that these essays are all my efforts as a scholar to struggle to figure out what actually is the good society. How does it operate? What would it look like? How would we instantiate it? What are the ideas that bolster it? What are the ideas that cut against it? That's what I try to do as a scholar. And I'm still, you know, I find it intellectually fascinating and I'm totally engrossed in that project. All right. And I'm struggling. I've been doing this for 30 years or more and I don't have any definitive answers. I have some answers I'm willing to like put to print and say, hey, here, try this out but they're ongoing. They're subject to revision. And that brings me to the second point, which is that struggle also is as a citizen. I'm struggling as a citizen to live in a better world, to be a better citizen myself, to improve you know, my family, my community, my environment that I find myself in. How do I act in that environment? How do I act democratically with regard to one another? So democracy to me means more than one person, one vote, majority rule. Democracy is a way of relating to one another. It's a radical leveling out. No hierarchies, right? No one has a special stature in which they stand. We're all there together and we govern with each other and we interact with one other. And what does that mean? It means that we have to actually listen to one another and to learn from one another. And in the process, move towards a better mutual understanding. And it's in that mutual understanding, I think, that we'll find the modern restatement, what you just mentioned about the old truths, the modern restatement of Adam Smith's liberal plan for liberty, equality, and justice for our times. That's a function of our discourse. That's a function of our listening. That's a function of our learning from one another about how to do that. We can't just passively recruit Adam Smith, right? Or recruit F.A. Hayek, right? Or recruit Robert Nozick. What we have to do is we have to actively take those ideas, discard the ones that are no longer relevant, learn from them with kindness and compassion and hope, and try to communicate with our fellow citizens today. And to me, that's what the adult conversation requires us to do. You have to begin where people are, not where you are, right? But you have to find that common ground to be able to start talking to them. And I realized, and I wrote in my little notebook, that I was engaged in the conversation with people. I wrote in big, bold letters. It just said, listen, Pete. That was it, (laughs) listen. Because they didn't need to hear me lecture them. I needed to listen to them so that I could have a conversation with them and try to bring what I might've thought I should have lectured them about Mm -hmm. to be able to talk to them about just what you mentioned with the old truths. The last thing I ever wanted to be was sound like the Peanuts parents, you know, in the old peanut card. And I think too many liberals do that. Right. And we forget to listen and learn from the perspective of the people that we're trying to communicate with. And that's across the board. And that's what I think a true attitude towards liberality would be. A liberal has to be liberal. (laughs) And they have to exhibit liberality. And to me, that liberality gets translated into compassion and humility. That's what we need to work with.
1: Fantastic. I hope and my
2: book suggests that.
1: Yes, I think that's a good place to end this. Thank you so much, Professor Pete Becky, for joining us with this conversation. It's been an enjoyable discussion. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's a great opportunity for me to be here with you, and I want to applaud you for all the work you're doing in promoting the discourse that's necessary for us to have uh, serious conversations about the liberal society.
0: Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again and see you next time.